The scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. The Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, yet it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing sight and find out why the bush hasn't burned up. When the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, I'm here. Then the Lord said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. He continued, I am the God of your father, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cries of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that is full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jesubites all live. Now, the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I to go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you. And this will show you I'm the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I now come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what is this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them then? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God continued, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. So uh, to get me relaxed at the beginning, uh, back in the fellowship hall, Kenny said, well, there, remember there are thousands watching online. Uh, so, <laughs> but there are a few people uh, watching online that I want to wave to. My family uh, decided not to uh, 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 face the Labor Day traffic, so they're all at home back up in Ohio and West Virginia. So, hello, family. So, um, as I was thinking about today's scripture and what I might want to say about it, I was recalling the last time I spoke to you, and the scripture then was from Genesis. It was the conflict between Jacob and Esau, Jacob's wrestling with the angel. Uh, not long after that passage comes one of the most wonderful stories of Genesis and of the Hebrew scripture overall. 
and that is the story of Jacob and his brothers in Egypt. Now, some of you know this story, I'm sure. Some of you maybe aren't familiar with it, so let me sum it up for you really quickly. Uh, Joseph is hated by his 10 older brothers. They sell him into slavery. He's carried down to Egypt, where very shockingly, because God is, is with him, he becomes uh, no longer a slave, but uh, right-hand man to the Pharaoh. Uh, time goes on, his brothers experience a famine where they live and they come to Egypt looking to buy food. He recognizes them, recognizes them, but they don't know him because, you know, he's walking like an Egyptian. He's got the makeup on. You, you've all seen that, right? Um, <clears throat> so it's no surprise that he doesn't, uh, isn't recognized. So he invites them for dinner and he presses them with questions about his family. And they say that their youngest brother, Benjamin, and their father are back home. When he hears that, Joseph brushes from the room. He cries. Uh, and, and there's this wonderful detail that, that I've always loved. Um, he washes his face. And maybe that's to compose himself. Maybe it's to get rid of the makeup so they can recognize him. But he turns, returns to the banquet and he says, I am Joseph. Is it true that my father is still alive? So there's a very happy reunion, and soon Joseph's kin have joined him in Egypt. But a few generations go on, and uh, we're told at the very beginning of Exodus, a Pharaoh arises who did not remember Joseph. Instead, uh, the uh, Egyptians are nervous because there are so many of the Hebrews, and they decide to enslave them. And that's where the Moses story picks up. So I was thinking, why do I find these stories so compelling? And the answer is, for one thing, they are stories. They're not doctrine, and they're not lectures. And as many of you know, I am an old English teacher. Uh, you never get over it. And um, <laughs> I, I love stories. Uh, and one thing I always need to, needed to say to my student about stories is that stories aren't always or even usually made up stuff. Uh, rather, they are narratives that are deeply true and they are capable of awakening us to truths inside us. Now, the Joseph story, like Cain and Abel or Jacob and Esau, awakens us to uh, a very real human truth of sibling relationships and power and the divine truth of God watching and planning and caring. In the New Testament, we hear Jesus tell stories all the time. It's his favorite way to teach. We call these stories parables, and they have great power for us. But today's story is all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. And it's one of those rich and intriguing stories that we often hear in the Hebrew Bible. And Moses' story overall is so compelling that it's been a successful movie. Uh, those of you who are closer to my age will remember the Ten Commandments. Those of you who are a lot younger will remember Prince of Egypt. But it's all the same story. Uh, if you're not familiar with who Moses is or what role he plays, in the history of faith, let me catch you up. So the Hebrews have gone to Egypt. They live there as honored guests. Then the Egyptians start to worry about their numbers, and they enslave them. Then later, to further diminish the Hebrews, the Pharaoh decides to kill off every newborn Hebrew baby boy. So Moses is born. His mother wants, obviously, to save the life of her baby. So she puts him in a blanket in a basket and floats it down the river. 
to a spot where the Pharaoh's daughter often visited. The plan works, the mysterious baby drawn from the river grew up to be a prince of Egypt. But Moses can't live as a prince when he realizes his identity as a Hebrew. So he runs off and he develops a new life. He marries and has children, helps his father-in-law. It's not at all a bad life, but it's not the life for which he was saved, saved from slaughter, saved from the river. So finally, Moses experiences the vision that the scripture tells us about. First, the bush that burns and is not consumed, the call from the angel, then the voice of God. This is such a rich passage, but there are two points that I'd like to look at with you in particular. The first is the revelation of the burning bush. When Moses responds to God's call saying, here I am, God is almost ready to give him the commission. But first, God tells Moses to stay where he is and take off his shoes. For this spot, the spot where God and Moses encounter each other, is holy ground. Now, what makes the ground holy? Is it because God is there? Yes, but it's also holy because God and Moses communicate there. God's choice to, Moses' choice to listen to God, even with all of his doubts and fears, helps to make it holy ground. And Moses needs the supernatural experience of the burning bush to wake him up to what will be his calling. So I wonder, what times in our lives have we experienced holy ground? For some of us, it's simply awakening to the holiness of all ground, to the power of nature around us. For others, there are times and places where we experienced a transformation in how we looked at a familiar or even unattractive place. As I've said, I'm a retired English teacher. And years ago, I used to work for educational testing services in the summer. Those are the folks who give us the AP exams, the uh, um, AP and uh, um, SAT, ACT, all those that you, you may remember from high school or college. Um, the way this worked was about 1,000 English teachers uh, came to a central location in the summer and uh, scored the exams. We spent a week, nine hours a day, no day off, no afternoon or morning off, uh, reading the exams and scoring them. It was very hard work. And uh, much to my surprise, the first time I went there, people weren't really very friendly because everyone was just too tired to, uh, to be friendly with each other. So we just did our job. Uh, we slept, we ate, they provided us with uh, cafeteria food, and then we went to work again. Um, Sunday was just another day. However, they always had some accommodation for Catholics, which is what I was at that time in my life. Generally, they bused us to a mass after work on Saturday night. But one year, for whatever reason, instead they brought a priest to us, to the room where we scored exams. Uh, the priest uh, was a young, very jolly, very, very nice guy. He rushed into this vast room where we were working, and uh, he moved the furniture around, and he moved the table. It happened to be the table where I was working, scoring exams. He, he moved that table to the front and took out a tablecloth and uh, bread and wine and uh, crucifix, and he turned that table into an altar. 
So we sang together, we heard the scripture, we reflected on it, we received communion, we exchanged a sign of peace. And that sterile, cold setting where we've been working all week became holy ground. When I returned the next morning to resume work, I felt changed. The ground was the same, but it was also radically different. And when I ran into one of the handful of people who had attended that service, we smiled at each other as though we shared a secret. And we did. For an hour, we had been on holy ground. So I wonder, if, is there a place that has become unexpectedly sacred for you? A place that has changed you, made you, see, made you see yourself and others in a different light? We don't take off our shoes so much these days, although I think some people do. But how might we show that we are on holy ground? So, the time in the presence of God on holy ground begins to change Moses, to ready him for the great task of leading his people. If you don't recall the story, I would urge you to go back and read the rest of Exodus and get all the details of how the Hebrews were freed from captivity. It's a long story, and for sure, it's not exactly a straight line. After the Hebrews escape, you'll remember the plagues, perhaps, uh, and, uh, and the parting of the Red Sea. And then, uh, it's still not, not easy after that. There are the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Um, Golda Meir once said, it took God 40 years to lead us to the only place in the Middle East that doesn't have oil. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, the story about the golden calf, all of that. And even when they get to where they're going, the Hebrews have to fight for the land that has been promised to them, land of milk and honey. But all this is to come, and I've gotten ahead of the story we're looking at today. So I'd like to go back to the reading and the rather long speech that God makes to Moses. Notice that God makes God's self the active partner. God says, I have witnessed, I have heard, I know, I have come down. But then comes the call. I shall send you to Pharaoh, and you are going to bring my people out of Egypt. Well, God makes it sound kind of easy. And if we know the story, we know it's not going to be. Um, far from just standing on holy ground and enjoying himself, Moses is called to act. I wonder if you ever found yourself thinking or saying, I wish God would just solve my problems for me. If you've ever had this thought, this is a good passage to reread. After God's initial speech, Moses answers rather sensibly, uh, kind of, huh, me? Um, if it had been me, I think I would have said, Lord, you freaketh me out. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but this is what most people in the Bible say when God calls them. But God responds with the most important words, I am with you. The companionship of God is adequate in ways that Moses has left yet to understand. This is a God who goes with Moses in all his tribulations and also goes with us. But Moses continues to question, what is the name of the one who proposes to send him? And the answer is, I am that I am. Tell them, I am sent you. 
Now, biblical scholars have struggled to translate the Hebrew word that most end up translating as I am. But some have said that the present tense is not adequate to God's self-identification. And I think I agree with this. It should be, I am, I was, and I will be. Maybe the word is not so graceful if it's translated in that way, but I like the sense of God being not just in the moment, but forever. The God of I was called Abraham and promised him a great nation. The God of I will be will feed and protect and forgive as the Israelites journey through the desert on the way to their destiny. But again, I'm ahead of myself. Before Moses is the hero confronting the Pharaoh and leading the Hebrews, he has to, however reluctantly, accept this call. The man who fled Egypt and made a new life for himself has to risk that life by returning to the land he must surely despise. But he will not be alone. He has the presence and the promise of God with him. And God also, as the passage progresses beyond what we read, equips Moses with human aid, his brother Aaron, who will speak for him. So Moses has all he needs to succeed. Notice that when Moses complains about his own inadequacy, God does not ensure, assure him that he is, in fact, adequate for the job. God doesn't say, you're going to be fine. Don't worry. But rather, God asserts the reality of God's own self, a power that cancels out however any hesitation, however sensible it might seem. I mentioned earlier that I am a retired English teacher. So as you can guess, I like books. I like stories. I have a lot of favorites. One writer I like very much is someone who's not at all famous, and most of you probably haven't heard of him, a Scottish writer who wrote in the beginning of the 20th century. His name's John Buchan. Uh, I recently reread my favorite book by him, which is called Mountain Meadow. As the book begins, the main character, whose name is Lethan, has gotten bad news from his doctor. He doesn't have long to live. So Lethan isn't afraid of death, but he hates the idea of withering away having people feel sorry for him. He wishes that his death could have meaning, and he realizes that if his death has meaning, his life will have meaning as well. As it happens, he learns from a friend that a young man of their acquaintance has gone missing in the wilds of northern Canada. Now, our hero has spent a great deal of time in remote parts of Canada, and it occurs to him that he's well-equipped to search for the lost young man. The doctor has said that if he coddles himself, he may live for two years. If he lives in the rough, maybe a few months. Our hero is not religious, but he has a strong sense of ethics, and so he heads for Canada. And as the weeks of his search progress, he comes to see it as something that he is called to do, and the greatest thing that his life has ever undertaken. Was it God who called him? He doesn't worry about the source of the call. It's enough that it is clear and it is good. During my time in seminary, I heard the expression, God doesn't call those who are equipped. God equips those who are called. In these few verses out of Moses' story and in the novel I mentioned, we hear a good explication of this thought. Moses has countless good reasons to walk away from his calling. And once he accepts the call, life doesn't get easier for him. But he is equipped 
with the knowledge that God has been and will be with him. Wherever he wanders, he is always in the presence of God and therefore on holy ground. The voice from the burning bush is planted deep inside him. So I wonder, are there calls that you and I have ignored? Maybe we're not listening. Maybe we're timid. Maybe we're tired. Maybe we want God to take care of the hard parts. So what would happen if we began to listen more carefully and more intentionally for those calls, large or small, to recognize a little nudge as a word from God, every bit as real as a burning bush? I wonder. So for me, the Moses story tells me to start paying better attention. Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.